Brad Feld has been an early stage investor and entrepreneur for more than 30 years. He's currently the managing director at Foundry Group, a US-based venture capital firm which invests in early stage tech startups. And he also co-founded Techstars, Mobius Venture Capital and Intensity Ventures. He's been a pretty busy guy. But Brad, the human behind all of this, is pretty thoughtful, generous, wise and a great storyteller. He currently co-hosts the Give First podcast, is the author of seven best-selling books on venture capital investing and entrepreneurship. So in this conversation with Brad, I get under the hood of his life as a venture capital investor. We discover his personal drivers and trigger points and work out why he and his wife Amy schedule monthly life dinners, kind of audits or retros on their relationship that they do in order to stay connected and really listen to each other away from the noise of their day-to-day working lives. It's taken Brad a while to find his place and create the space in the world he needs to make sense of himself and the changing world around him. As a reformed workaholic, he regularly goes off the grid now and hits the trails around his hometown of Boulder in Colorado to run miles and miles solo. And he has a personal quest to run a marathon in every state of the US. For the record, he's currently at 25, with another 25 to go. He's a pretty remarkable human, and whether you're a founder, funder, searcher or finder, Brad's unique perspective, wisdom and worldview are well worth sitting in for a while. We each have so much to learn from simply hearing each other's stories. Here's my conversation with Brad Feld. Brad Feld, super excited for this conversation and to have you on Human Cogs. Before we get into understanding more about your life and your work and your philosophy, um, you're an entrepreneur, you're an author of multiple books, I've read most of them, you're a blogger prolifically on your Feld Notes, and you're also considered one of the world's preeminent venture capitalists. Let's just put right up front for our listeners, what actually is a venture capitalist? As a venture capitalist, we're typically investing in high growth companies, often when they're very young, when they're private companies. So they might be 5, 10, 15, 20 people, probably have a product either in the market or about to be in the market. We're investing in these companies. We don't own a majority of them. We generally own anywhere from 10% of the company to 30 or 40% of the company. Sometimes we own as little as 5% of the company. Sometimes we join the boards. Uh, sometimes we don't. Uh, we we generally invest uh, in multiple rounds of the companies and try to help them get from these very early stages to, you know, significant, successful, long-term businesses that either end up getting acquired or going public. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's the general path of the companies. Okay, so there's a lot of variance in there, even by listening to it for the uninitiated. The, it's it's not a formula necessarily. You're coming into conditions of extreme uncertainty and and trying to place a bet really on a company that you think has the best chance of getting to market better, faster than anyone else. I think it's placing a bet, but it's also, at least the way we do it, uh, engaging with the founders, engaging with the entrepreneurs, uh, helping them build their business, which could be building a leadership team, product strategy, getting customers, getting additional financings, understanding their market positioning, dealing with the, all kinds of the chaos that unfolds and you know, the ups and downs. And personally, I view that I have uh, only really one decision I want to make about a company after I've invested, and that's whether or not I support the CEO. And if I support the CEO, I work for her. And if I don't support the CEO, it's my job to do something about it, which does not mean fire her. It means try to get back to a place where I support her. So to do the work 
to get there. And, you know, I do have as a VC, as a major investor in these companies, one, you know, one tool, which is often uh, most of the time you can replace the CEO. Uh, but generally, you know, what I've learned over doing this across many, many companies is every CEO, every founder needs different kinds of help. And so bringing a formula to the table that, you know, here are the four things I do and we're going to do this and then we're going to do this and that's bullshit. It doesn't work. Yeah. It's a partnership. Yeah. And it's one in the context of the individual who is the, 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 the leader of the company and the founders of the company and this sort of goal of helping them achieve what that long-term vision is recognizing, and it's, it's part of how venture capital works, especially at the early stages, many companies fail, many companies don't succeed. And it's something that it's like nine out of 10, right. Or something like, I don't even know what the ratio is anymore. I mean, there's a lot of pretty slim, (laughs) a lot of numbers, but yeah, uh, the vast majority of companies don't end up being financially successful. I had a friend once of a company that he ran for 17 years that uh, in the end, you know, shut down. It didn't even, he didn't find a buyer. He shut the company down. And we were having a conversation about it. And, and I said something about not being successful. And he says, I don't like to think of it that way. And I said, tell me more. Uh, he said, we weren't financially successful. We didn't generate a return for us as founders. We didn't generate a return for our investors. But over the 17 years, we employed, you know, a thousand people. We, you know, had a hundred people get married uh, while they were at our company, there were, I don't know, the number of babies that were born. They served, again, thousand plus customers. They provided real value and things. And for everybody, I mean, they were they were good paying jobs that, again, didn't have this meaningful financial outcome for the founders. But that not that, Brad, like that is the binary metric a lot of the time that we're pulling. It's profit over purpose or babies made. Like a lot of the time, VC world, it's it's hard and it's binary. It is about the 10x factor or, or really, yeah, pulling that, that true uh, indicator for what we think success looks like. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I, th- I think there was a lot of wisdom from my friend. And the wisdom also emanates from the perspective of two things. One, even in a successful company, you have lots of ups and downs, plenty of near-death experiences, lots of moments or parts of the business that were experiences of failure or missed expectation. So being able to have a broader view than just the economic outcome at the end is powerful. The other is it's a good metaphor for life, right? In the end, we all die. So if the end point is that we all die, like who gives a shit? What does it matter? Like why bother with any of it? And the answer is there's enormous number of experiences along the way, some good, some not, some with rich learning, some extremely challenging, lots of them uh, uh, difficult, tragic, disappointing, whatever, like the whole range of emotions. But the experience of all of that is a lived life. And the same is true for companies. Like companies have these experiences. You don't start a company, add a bunch of people, have this huge exit. And at that moment of exit, everybody that ever worked for the company is still there. Everybody that ever engaged with the company is still friends. Like so many different things happen. And so I like to view it not from the standpoint of rationalizing failure, but from the standpoint of viewing it as an as a total experience rather than just this binary metric of saying, well, 
you know, if you generated a 10x return for your investors, then you were good. And if you didn't, then you were a failure. I don't buy that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think if you look at sort of VC world and, and certainly in your books, you talk about, you know, portfolio construction and sometimes VCs seem to have a retrospective genius where they go, yeah, yeah, I saw Airbnb or I saw X company long before anyone saw the magic, but actually it's only many years after the fact when the company successfully got to market that they attribute that thing they saw. What do you think actually makes a great VC who can truly see things that other people don't see or predict market shift? I think it's really difficult and challenging to view VCs as a singular archetype. Uh, I wrote a blog post a number of years ago that it's titled something like VCs are, are D&D characters or Dungeons and Dragons characters. I was a big D&D nerd as a kid. And, you know, a VC could be a, a wizard or it could be an orc or it could be a dwarf, right? It could be a mage. It could be, there's lots of different characters and they have different skill levels and different experience sets and different tools in their toolboxes. And VC firms tend to be collections of different archetypes, and so to say this is the characteristic that makes a VC great, I think is... It's reducing it. It's too reductionist. Yeah. It's reductive in a way that doesn't work. I think there are a lot of people in the world of entrepreneurship and in the world of finance who try to emulate, and certainly true in the world of entrepreneurship, who try to emulate others. Oh, that person was successful behaving that way. I'm going to try to behave that way. Yeah. If I wear a black skivvy, I may start the next Apple. There you go. That's right. Emulating, you know, or, well, you know, Steve Jobs didn't want to make as many decisions. So he had one uniform. So I'm going to have one uniform. So I don't have to make as many decisions. So I, I think that's actually healthy thought process. Like what are the characteristics of successful people that you as an individual want to value or choose to value? And then you build your own character, your own archetype, based on those things. Mm-hmm. And for VCs, for investors, as well as for entrepreneurs, in a lot of ways, there is compounding value from the experience. So some of the most successful entrepreneurs I've worked with had a failure and then a success or had an early success, big success, and then had a failure. Mm. So it's the compounding value of that lived experience of entrepreneurship itself. The lived experience and learning, the third experience would end up being a massive success. I've seen that play out over and over again, where I think it's easy for people to create the, these, these narratives of, I did A and therefore I'm successful. And then I did B and look how great I am. And then I did C and And, you know, what's missing is there's a whole bunch of stuff between A and B that probably included a bunch of heartbreak and learning and challenges. There's a whole bunch of stuff between B and C that probably involved heartbreak, learning and challenges. And that heartbreak, learning and challenges is where, in a lot of ways, the magic occurs of the learning to then be able to go on and have accomplishment, but also in the context of the accomplishment to be able to appreciate it. But maybe when we when we tell ourselves, when you then stitch together that narrative over time, then you're just talking about the peaks of the mountain and people forget like the dark valleys and dungeons that they've had to go through to get to that point. And 
you know, we all know there's no such thing as an overnight success, but there's this sort of cascade or this um, concertina of all the things that led to that moment of actual sort of that disproportionate success relative to others. Um, I want to tap in, Brad, to you said, you know, D&D, you know, there's no archetype for, for VCs. You are one of the most successful VCs in the world. Um, and you're absolute sort of go-to for advice. Um, people read your books like Bibles, both investors and um, founders and funders around the world. What's your superpower? I have always loved learning. The learning does not have to be specific. I'm very comfortable with the idea of running experiments, trying something new, stumbling around and learning from it. I'm not afraid to have something not work. I'm not afraid to say something stupid. I'm not afraid to change my mind when presented with data or when I'm in an argument and somebody else makes a compelling reason for me to change my mind. I would say that's a big part of it. Another is uh, I would categorize it as my temperament. I am older, and so my temperament has solidified. I think people tend to, you know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, you're still figuring out what you're what you're like. And I is it has it solidified or calcified? I like to think it's solidified. I don't think it's actually calcified because I think it, I think it still does change. And I do I do spend a lot of time learning about myself, right? Like I, I like to to say that w- whether it's introspection or therapy or really trying to learn new things doesn't matter what the modality is, but I think a rich life is continuing to do that exploration of what matters to you and what you care about and what you want to understand and how you want to engage. And I think for me, that allows me to engage with founders, companies in the context of a posture of curious, supportive, reflecting my own experience, but not assuming that I know the answer. And That temperament, which for me in my 20s, I would say was high anxiety. And I've talked very openly about struggling with anxiety and depression uh, as an adult. Again, as I've gotten older and that temperament has has solidified, I have never really had a temper. I, I, I don't carry around a lot of anxiety per se. I identify when I feel anxiety that something is out of whack in my world. And when I was in my 20s, I didn't know what to do with that. So that caused me, and even in my 30s and into my 40s. Today, when I feel anxiety, it causes me to think harder about what's going on. And, you know, there's a cliche about people that run away from the problem versus people that go towards the problem. And the cliche has never really totally landed with me, but in this moment, I don't have a better one. I'm much more of the go toward the problem and deal with the issue than I am run away from it, Mm -hmm. which I think helps a lot in the context of not being an operator in a company. Because when you see a problem, you observe a problem that a founder, a CEO, a leader is struggling with, as somebody who's on the board, an investor, an advisor, if you go towards the problem and you do it in a calm way, and you know that the person that's living in it is going to have whatever their emotional tenor is, you can engage with them around that in a way that's often much more constructive. If you think about uh, people who, who operate from a position of conflict or people who you know, they just can't stand to have ambiguity. So they have to fight out like this effort to get clarity on this thing where there's ambiguity or there's a problem. 
you compare that to the person who like, okay, I'm totally comfortable with ambiguity. Let's spend some time trying to figure out what we want to do, where we want to go, why we want to go there. One of the things that great founders do is they are obsessed with solving the problem in the most perfect way uh, for whichever users that they're serving. It sounds like that might be your superpower, this sort of being able to come at that problem, but from a really great level of perspectives. If we go back to the notion of of singular archetypes or types of archetypes. Like I'm, I think the beauty of humans is that even if people emulate other people, they're still their own person and they have their own strengths and weaknesses. If somebody said, well, what's the one thing, you know, that person X does that if you could do that, just like person X, you'd want to do it. And you'd like, my answer is, nah, don't think about it that way. Mm. I, I think that's a superpower. It's, it's the, the, you know, the need for validation, the need for looking like other people, the need for conforming, the need for sort of being acknowledged as expert in this thing. I'm not that interested in any of those things. I'm much more interested in learning. I'm much more interested in exploring. I'm much more interested in playing around with stuff and building on the experiences that I have. And when I'm unhappy, unsatisfied, anxious, frustrated, using those as prompts to try to figure out what's going on versus getting stuck in the emotional spin cycle of whatever's going on. Brad, you said um, that at one time you were what might be described as a workaholic. So in your first company, you worked for seven years every day, including on weekends, and you would track your time in five-minute increments, which I found both Fabulous and, and terrifying. Um, wh- where did that guy go? Where's, where's that Brad? The, the five-minute increment thing is, I think terrifying is the right word. So that first company was a cons- software consulting business, and we build our clients uh, for the work that we did, and we tracked it in five-minute increments. You know, this was in the late 80s, early 90s. And when I sold that company, uh, I told my wife, Amy, that I was never doing that again. Like seven years of doing that, you know, and lawyers do that, right? But seven years of doing that and never fucking doing that again. I can't stand that level of... What place did you get to? Is it because the company was sold and that released you from that insanity or did you... Yeah, I can't... No, I was just released from having to do that. I stopped, you know, the next work I did, I didn't need to keep track of that. I did continue to work extremely hard. So, you know, on a on a number of hours worked basis, it was a, a large number on a always working, always being available, always engaged. Uh, that was a big part of, of me for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I would separate these into time stages. So if you go back to my 20s in that first company, my priority was that company. I got married to my high school girlfriend. The company was more important that relationship blew up. We didn't have any kids. So we were married, but it was more like a bad breakup, you know, in your early twenties than anything else, because I really prioritized the work over everything else, including me. At the end of the 1990s and early 2000, uh, and Amy and I write about, my wife's name is Amy Bachelor. Amy and I write about this in our, in our book, uh, The Startup Life. We came very close to getting uh, divorced because Now, it wasn't that I wasn't saying that she was the most important person in my world, because I would say that, and she was, intellectually to me, but my words didn't match my actions. I was still prioritizing work over being with her. And if I set the expectations that I had to work, she wasn't constraining me from working huge amounts. 
It was when I set the expectation that I wanted to be with her, when I committed to be with her, and then I didn't follow through on that and prioritized work on top of it. And that, when I was in my mid-30s, was a huge, huge moment for me. And that was really the moment that I started trying to better understand what was important to me with that one big glitch. And I, I carried it around for a long time, which is my words. My value system is my words and my actions should match up. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. If I make a mistake, I own it. If I start doing something and I commit to it, I'll follow through on it. It might not be on schedule, but it'll get done. Like, you know, those things are important to my value system. And in my personal, most important relationship, I wasn't living that value system. So I worked hard on that. And, And to her credit, she helped me enormously because it would have been easier for her to say, fuck it, you know, I don't want to deal with you anymore. Um, but instead, she was willing to navigate through a bunch of things. To come back to the timesheet, one of the delightful things about being in a relationship is your partner generally knows how to press the big red buttons in the middle of your forehead. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, I've been married for over 20 years. Yep. You know, He can like, you're, blow you're, me up with a look. Yep. Your partner knows exactly what to do to press that big red button. And so I said to Amy, um, you know, we had a, a long weekend where we we sort of worked, started working through, you know, this moment. And I said, look, just give me some rules. I, did, I you know, I have an engineer's brain. Just give me some rules. I'll follow the rules. And at first she didn't like that. At first she said, ah, that's not romantic. I don't want to have to define the rules. And I said, you know, just think about it as you get to control me a little bit. You get to define uh, the parish. like. Okay, I can I can I can think of the, it that way. I like the control thing. Let me think. Yeah, about that's, that that sounds actually appealing. You'd be like a puppet. And I said, yeah, just you know, you tell me what the rules are. She says, all right. First thing I want you to do is I want you to keep track of your time each day, how much time you work. <laughs> and I said, you gotta be fucking kidding what, me. What in five in that. five minute increments or what? <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and she said, no, you don't do it in five minute increments. But every day, I want you to write down, you know, how many hours you work that day at the end of the week. You know, you need to email me how many hours you worked because I want to keep track of it. And, you know, not surprisingly, I thought I was working a lot less hours than I was working. And, you know, when I would not include flying from Boulder to Boston on the hours work, she'd say, well, how about the five hour Boulder to Boston trip? And I'd say, "Uh, that doesn't really count. I say, well, was it with me? Were you sleeping? No. Was it with me? No. Then it counts as work. And just the the point of that is, uh, and we had a bunch of other rules and some of them we talk about in the book and many of them we still do to this day. And they've been really healthy in the context of our relationship, but sort of, again, walking into the issue, you know, I do not want this relationship to end. I can avoid dealing with it, but rather than avoid dealing with it, let me try to understand what's going on. And now let me move towards the problem and let me take action about it from my frame of reference versus saying, you know what, you've got to support me, you know, sweetie, you know, this work is really important to me. And, you know, her rational response is, I know it's really important to me, but you keep telling me I'm more important to you and I'm not getting what I want. And and therefore either something's got to change or I'm out of here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I heard you talk, maybe it was on Tim Ferriss and you chat with him last year um, around how you've actually put some structural things in place to set some sort of cadence or for check-ins in your relationship with Amy. Uh, tell me, tell me about that where you do your regular, is it monthly? I think you get, yeah, to- we do a bunch of different stuff. One of the ones we've done for 
you know, 21 years now since 2000 is uh, once a quarter, we take a week of vacation and we go completely off the grid. So we just spend time with each other. COVID has been a little bit wrinkly with that because we're together all the time, but we, we've managed to take some weeks, you know, off where we both don't have meetings and we don't schedule stuff and it's just a lot quieter. Mm-hmm. A COVID thing that we started doing because we're together all the time, which we love, uh, we've incorporated, we used to have a thing we called four minutes in the morning, which was wherever we were, we were apart a lot because I traveled all the time. Uh, we would spend four minutes in the morning just catching up. Hey, how are you? Good morning. Starting the day off. We did that very consistently for a long time. We kind of go in and out phases where we would forget to do it for a couple of weeks and be like, hey, why are we doing the four minutes in the morning? We do it back in. A couple of weeks into being locked down from COVID in early April of last year, we decided to start having coffee each morning together. And uh, I have a very sort of simple and consistent morning routine. I get up, I go to the bathroom, I brush my teeth, uh, I take my medicine, and then I go meditate for 20 minutes. And I've been doing that for a long time. When I come upstairs from that, she usually wakes up before I do. We sit down, we have coffee together. Every now and then she has a work meeting, you know, or I sleep in late enough, it doesn't work. But I'd say it's 29 out of 30 days of the last year we've had coffee. It's usually 15 to 30 minutes. So not four. So how did you sort of work out that you give each other more than four minutes? Well, we, we sort of realized we were together all the time, but then the day would start and I'd be on Zoom calls all day. She'd be on Zoom calls all day. At the end of the day, we were tired. And in the first thing in the morning, we were pretty fresh. And the ability to sort of process what was going on through this period of time, connect with how we were feeling, <clears throat> talk about things that were changing or that we needed to deal with or that we were worried about or anxious about, uh, or frankly, just be together. And we didn't, you know, we don't set a timer. We just sort of said, I have two cups of coffee a day, one cup of caffeinated coffee, and then one cup of decaf. And so sort of the length of time is that length of time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we get into these really heavy conversations and it stretches out over a half hour. Sometimes, you know, we're both kind of ready to go do our thing after 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. But you're prioritizing that check-in point in your relationship as as part of your work. It's almost like putting that same rigor and uh, commitment to the work you do to, to your relationship. So it too has a chance of success. For the software developers in the, in the audience that listen to you, it's very similar to um, an agile software methodology or a scrum methodology where you do a daily check-in, right? Yeah. A daily stand-up. It's this, Just without the you post-its, know, you know, without the Kanban, without the like. That's right. Yeah, that's right. We're not, <laughs> yeah. no, we, don't, no, we used to joke, we don't have to do a sprint every two weeks, but this was another <laughs> thing that we do is that once a month we have life, what we call life dinner. It's not date night because we have plenty of those, but the life dinner is uh, a combination of a retrospective of the previous month. And then the equivalent of sprint planning for the next month. It's a chance to sit down and talk about anything that's happened that's lingering. Here's a magical part of that. If Amy does something on the 21st of the month that annoys me, in that moment, I can react to it. But maybe I'm busy. Maybe she's busy. Maybe I don't feel like it. Maybe I don't have the emotional energy. Maybe something else was going on and what she did wasn't really annoying, but I was annoyed by the thing before the thing she did. It's the 21st of the month. I can wait till life dinner and tuck it away and bring it up at the end of the month. Oh, you could compound your resentment over a number of nine days. To yeah. I could compound my resentment, but this is the interesting thing about nine days. It doesn't compound. Most of the time it dissipates. 
And even if it compounds, in other words, it's, it chews at you, it's only nine days. So do you have a little black, little black book? Like, do you write that thing down in a little kind of ledger? No, and I, think this is, I think this is a healthy thing because when you sit down and, you, you know, you now have two or three hours for dinner. And the, the part of what you're doing is saying, you know, what, what happened last month, including what did you do that pissed me off? Or what did you do that made me really happy? And from my frame of reference, and in a safe and open space for her to say, well, when I said that, that's not what I meant. Or she said, yeah, I remember saying that. You know why I said that? I said that because you really pissed me off when you did this. Yeah. And then you're calm. You have some detachment from that moment. Yeah, you don't have the emotional flames around it, which prevents you from being out of reach each other. That's right. And your, your collective goal is to air it out sort of be with it. So I'd say there's a lot of things in our relationship that are like that, which is, I'll just end with, um, again, I have a pretty calm temperament, pretty even keeled temperament. She's fierce. And she grew up in a family with, you know, plenty of loud, plenty of fighting, plenty of anger. I will, I can't win an argument with her. If I escalate, she escalates. And if you know, you know, war games is mutually assured dis- dis- destruction. Our joke is the only way to win is not to play. <laughs> and so, you know, when I see her escalate, I just stop. And she might escalate another time or two because she's wound up. But again, having this to say, you know, I'm sorry, you know, that I got so bent on you when this happened. Uh, and I l- l- let me hear more about what was going on with you. It, it may sound like pop psychology, but if you wait six months and only do it when things get really bad, you can't make any progress. If you're sort of touching base every day and then you have sort of a heavy, deep thing once a month, you're sort of clearing out all the crap all the time. Yeah, rather than getting to a point where you suddenly have a, you know, a, 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 a clusterfuck that actually can't be solved. It's just, you know, there's too much in there to unpack. Yeah, wow. It sounds very disciplined and, and very a high place to come in at a relationship and give it the respect and nourishment and space it deserves to flourish with all of its colour. Brad, I'm interested in, you know, work has obviously been such a massive part of what drives you, what keeps you learning and curious. How has COVID and, and lockdown, how has it changed your relationship with work or reframe what work means to you? I think there's actually a pretty significant reframing going on for me on two vectors, COVID and age. So uh, at 55, while I'd like to live to be 173, I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that more than half my life is over. That is definitely an influencer on how I spend my time and what I want to spend my time on. COVID uh, was profound uh, for a couple of reasons. One was I was already a remote worker. My Partners and I are based in Boulder, Colorado. We invest all around the United States. Uh, for many years, I traveled 75% of the time. And you know, being on the road means that you really have to learn how to work remotely. And I've been on the road since the mid-90s. And you know, it's much, much, much easier to work remotely in 2021 than it was in the mid-90s. You know, you're in Boston and you have a board meeting in California and you have to deal with it remotely because there's just no way to be in Boston for a board meeting in the morning and California in a board meeting for the afternoon. Boulder's home base. So we have all of these companies everywhere around the country that we're involved in. So like learning how to engage with them effectively remotely was important. On top of that, I've never been an office person. 
I just uh, the the need for like an office and the office environment is not important to me. And in fact, the space that I'm in that you're talking to me from now, Amy's computer's right there. You know, we share a space because we like being together. And, you know, we have ways that if I'm on video, she's doing something else or if she needs to be on video. She has another she has her own office she can go to. I have another place in the house I can go to. Like the, the fluidity of it for me is much more interesting than like I go to my office, I go to my desk, I'm in the same place. Susan Cain wrote a very important book a decade or so ago called Quiet. And that book really introduced people to the notion of how to think about what an introvert really is and the difference between introvert and extrovert and the dynamics of extrovert bias in our society. And unfortunately, with many things, the phrases have been co-opted. And so a lot of people talk about being an introvert or an extrovert without having any idea what any of it means. So, you know, if I say I'm fundamentally an introvert, people don't actually know what that means because it doesn't actually mean anything anymore. What does it mean to you when you say that? Well, this this is where I'll go. And by the way, you know, people say, well, you're just saying you're an introvert for the social value of being an introvert because that has now some kind of social value. I see that go around every now and then. For me, I view it as I have a glass and the way the glass gets emptied is, and you could say it's a glass or it's a, it's my, my gas tank. It gets emptied by being around other people and it gets filled by being alone or being with one other person. So I would much rather generally be alone. In addition, there's a, a side effect for me personally within all of this. And this was a function of COVID. I was extremely uncomfortable with the disease state for a couple of reasons, some, some rational, some irrational But by being uncomfortable with the disease, not a little uncomfortable, extremely uncomfortable, being around other people then caused me to be very anxious. And if you go back to the beginning, anxiety is a thing like I feel anxiety now. I don't, you know, I don't suffer from it. I'm like, okay, well, what's causing me to feel that way? What can I do to change that? And so what really happened in COVID from work was I just fully embraced this notion of working from home and being a remote worker unambiguously and unapologetically, not just during COVID, but on a go forward basis for the rest of my life. Well, you see some companies like Atlassian and others have audaciously declared, you know, they are going to be fully distributed, fully remote, ongoing, whether the world writes its, well, goes back to what we were doing before. So um, so it's here to stay in many respects, or we see hybrid working models, um, people trying to make that work. Uh, I'm, that, the jury's out on whether that can actually work, uh, having two systems working together. The important thing for me in this is I decided not to enforce my view emotionally on others. So because I'm already very comfortable being a remote worker, I just said, that's what I'm going to be. Several of my partners very much want to be together and in person and constructively as a partnership, we will talk very openly about people's wants and needs around it and, you know, set up our infrastructure so it works. You're an investor, you're all over what's happening across the world in in VC, uh, where the shifts are, where the patterns are. And what we know is about 97% of venture capital funding goes to bros, goes to mainly male teams at the moment. We haven't seen any shifts despite multiple attempts to change the structure of the ecosystem, to provide incentives, to introduce quotas and all sorts of things. So about 3% of all VC investment goes, therefore, you know, to women-led companies or and people of colour, it's even less. Uh, and we also know that the average deal size for 
female-founded or co-founded companies is about less than half of that of male-founded teams, even if they do successfully raise funding. So my question to you, the very wicked question is, what structural changes or what can we do to genuinely close that gender gap? I think it's a critical question, an essential question. In some ways, just by continuing to ask the question and talk about it, will have an impact, even though that's not the solution. Step one, I think assertively and aggressively continue to talk about it. Step two, acknowledge very clearly that it's a foundational structural inequity that needs to be addressed and eliminated. And the structural inequity on the gender side and the structural inequity on the racial equity side, they are related, but they are not necessarily equivalent. And so, and when I say they're not necessarily equivalent, there's lots of different factors in the mix to address. And so just saying it's a single category of problem, I think is a mistake. Next, I do think that there is change happening from where I sit and my view, that is the beginning of long-term behavior change and structural change. And I can speak about it from a US perspective. I joined the board of an organization Uh, and was the founding chair in 2005. It was an organization called National Center for Women and Information Technology. Uh, It's an amazing organization. And I showed up and within about three months, I thought I was real uh, reasonably tuned into gender equity issues. My parents are equal partners in their marriage. Amy and I are equal partners in in our marriage. You know, I just, I felt like I sort of had a clue. Within three months, I realized that when men, and then, and at that point in time, it was almost entirely white men, when they showed up at a discussion around gender equity and tech, at best, they were neutral, and most of the time, they were harmful. And so from that, I completely shifted my own behavior to say, look, I don't know anything about what to do. My job is to help affect change. And from that came language that we use uh, Uh, broadly now, but really came from N.C. Witt, which is this notion of a male advocate and the notion of advocacy or an ally or accomplice. I I mean, I saw so many men show up in the gender discussion then, and I'll link this to what people can do today and say, I know what we need to do. This is the problem. And here's how you fix it. Most of the time, if you interpret that as graciously as you could, what was being said was either women are broken or women are the problem. And it's just fucking wrong. The inverse would be to say, hi, here I am. I'm a man. I'm a man. There is a structural inequity here. I want to be involved in helping eliminate that structural inequity. Tactically, there's many things to do. I think the trigger point in the US, by the way, for the shift, again, it's 2005 I got involved in this. And lots of people say nice things, but then don't do anything. And that went on for a lot of years. And the moment that I saw that start to change was with Me Too Mm. and with Me Too movement. And suddenly with the Me Too movement, there was a structural shift in terms of power. There was a structural shift in terms of discussion. There were a number of men who suddenly said, you know what? I've been sort of saying this is a meritocracy for my whole life. I realized that that's bullshit because there's a structural advantage that I have as a white man over a woman in the context of this. And so the meritocracy is not valid. So I have to pay attention to it in a different way. Yeah. And and power and uh, gender and race are codified in our structural systems. 
by policy, by our organisational structures. And so we ultimately have to, like Rome needs to fall or at least be freaking renovated in order for women and people of colour and minorities to get that chance to be built into the codification of that system. That's right. And I, I, I do think that there are enough advocates and allies now, whether we're talking about gender or race, there's a critical mass of people who are, who are saying there are structural inequities. We need to actively, not passively, actively help engage in helping eliminate them. And there's lots of different things that can be done. Um, uh, I like to say I have three resources to help. I have money, time, and network. Those are my three resources. Putting my energy against helping women be successful as entrepreneurs and investors, helping people of color be successful as entrepreneurs and investors those are the three resources I have. And actively deploying those resources in service of those entrepreneurs and investors is what will help generate change versus, for example, passively contributing to nonprofits and saying, okay, I did my part. I gave to something. I feel better about myself. Well, it's a hands-off, not a hands-on model. Right. Yeah. Actively engaging and being uncomfortable, being wrong, making mistakes, Trying things that don't have immediate impact, being willing to be criticized, being willing to be on the receiving end of somebody being upset because of how they've been treated by somebody else, just being okay with not trying to be defensive and say, whoa, 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 that's not about me that you're going there. It's like, yep, I get it. That is a problem. What can I do to help you address that problem? And creating the space that it's, you know, you've talked about that with your relationship with Amy and, and your relationship with founders. And again, with that problem, creating that space to sit back from it and not react and, and not bring your own agenda or emotion into it. Yeah, we need many more allies and not adversaries uh, broadly in our entrepreneurial ecosystems and, and all of our systems indeed, so that we can work together to create the change that we know needs to happen at a wholesale level. The last comment I'd make on this, which I learned from, again, Lucy Sanders and NC Witt, but I think is essential, and I've learned it again in the context of racial equity in the U.S. in the last year, post the George Floyd murder, as a result of a lot of the conversations I've had. One of the worst things you can do is, is go to a person who is uh, a woman and say, tell me what to do, or go to a person of color and say, tell me what to do, um, because then you're shifting the burden to them. You can do something that is way more impactful by saying, I am here to engage in helping you with something you're already working on. What are you already working on that I can engage with to help you be successful with? It's such a different way of showing, you know, a different way of showing up to the, okay, yeah, sure, there's a problem. What should I do? Mm -hmm. Which is just, again, you're shift, the person who says that is shifting the burden. I saw that. Again, I saw that going back to 2005, and I didn't really totally understand how insidious that is, but it just reinforces that structural inequity. You know, if I knew exactly what you should do, uh, you would have done it already because it would be obvious. Uh, why is it my problem to teach you, Mr. White Male, what to do versus you putting the energy into learning what's going on and actually understanding my lived experience so that you can engage in something that's actually going to make a difference. Yeah, exactly. And coming from a place of empathy, listening, learning, not jumping to solution or status quo things that we know aren't working. 
Brad, um, we always end these conversations on Human Cogs by asking our guests one final question. As you well know, life can be have many twists and turns along the trails. When you think about, you know, all the people that you've come across and that you know, who do you think is doing human really well? I mean, can I answer with two people? You can. Uh, one person passed away in January. Um, his name is Len Fassler. He's the guy that bought my first company and is my most significant mentor. Became like a second father to me. So we had a relationship, but it wasn't a paternalistic relationship. It was really a peer, peer relationship over time. We worked together on a number of things. But from him, he was extraordinary, extraordinary at interacting with other people. It didn't matter what the context or circumstance was. He wasn't always nice. He wasn't always pleasant. He wasn't always calm. He was extraordinary. And he he lived the human experience in just a great way. The other person is, you know, which she's not known to probably your audience, but is is my wife, Amy. She goes by Amy Bachelor. She has always been extremely conscious of the ebbs and flow of life. And she's always been very engaged in the goal that she has, which is to have, in her words, a happy life. And she says, everybody gets to define happy for themselves. And no matter how much adversity you face or challenges you have or difficulties that ensue along the way, defining what makes you happy and then orienting your energy towards it, knowing that you're not going to be happy all the time, knowing that not everything you're going to do is going to make you happy, but having clarity on what you're trying to get out of this life experience, that's been, she's, she's amazing at that. And it's been really powerful for me. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us, and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.